How's it going, Metin? It's uh, really good to finally have you on the podcast. I think we've been trying to get this thing scheduled for like almost the entire year at this point. (laughs) Yeah. 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 It's been a while. It's been a crazy year for me overall, you know, like had my first kid and she came a little bit early and it was just, it's like one, one life change after another, you know? Yeah, well, it's good to finally see you. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, you know, Metin, I, I always start everyone off with telling their background, right? How they got into IT or cybersecurity. And I, I feel like it gives my audience a really good picture of, you know, not just your background, but that anyone can come into this thing from any background and, you know, really thrive in IT. And so I think it's always beneficial to hear everyone's, you know, different backgrounds because I, I haven't heard the same background twice, actually, on, on this podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll start off with a quick introduction here. Uh, my name is Mitten. I'm currently the uh, CTO at Brumetic. Uh, Remedic is a cybersecurity solutions company. Uh, we provide virtual CISO services. And on top of that, we also provide uh, other cybersecurity services like penetration testing, network assessments, internal audits, and all of that. And uh, I've been working with the company for the past now six years. <laughs> so I've kind of been working at Remedic since day one uh, with Justin, the CEO. And before that, I was actually um, working as uh, a IT specialist. I have a computer science background. So uh, after kind of like work through IT, eventually I got into cybersecurity and compliance there. Hmm. Yeah, that that, uh, that makes sense. You know, so Remedic, I, I guess that's a that's an interesting area. You know, I've had on a few other people previously. I mean, it was a long time ago um, that did virtual CISO functions. But, you know, can we talk a little bit about that? Because I haven't seen that as being in the field. I haven't seen that as much, you know, um, as it was, you know, promoted when I was trying to get in the field like 10 years ago at this point, right? So it seems like that landscape has completely changed um, in in the offering and, and what it's like to to be a virtual CISO. Um, can we go over that a little bit? Yeah. And I, I think it's really because compliance is becoming a much bigger deal than it used to be. Like we have all these new data privacy frameworks like GDPR in Europe when it was released a couple of years ago, it was chaos. Everyone was just like trying to figure out like what to do for GDPR, what those requirements are because data privacy wasn't really a thing that was legally required before. And now we're seeing some uh, states in the United States, like California, releasing CCPA regulations. Um, so those are just some of the examples there. I think that compliance and legal regulations around data privacy and like customer data has been increasing. And because of that, these organizations, whether they are small or large, they need to become compliant with these frameworks. I feel like back in the day, only very large enterprises really needed to do uh, security compliance. But now, even if you have like an employee and like you're a startup, you're a very small organization, you still have to comply with these regulations because there's just no other way to get around that. 
However, uh, small companies don't need an entire security team of like 10, 15 people, <laughs> and they may not even need one person full time. So what we're doing is we work with startups, we work with enterprises, we work with mid-sized businesses, and we provide them a virtual CISO. And essentially, this person would be an extension of those organizations, a cybersecurity team, and in some cases, the only person who is really mm -hmm. responsible for their cybersecurity program. Uh, and we really just do this because these uh, businesses may not have enough knowledge on the compliance frameworks that they need to comply with, or simply they don't have the resources to uh, create and maintain a cybersecurity team. So that's why they hire us and outsource the service. Hmm. So what does it take to be a virtual CISO? You know, do you have to be a, a full-time CISO at another company to get the experience to be able to do it? Is there different specialties? How does, how does it work? I think a compliance knowledge is absolutely necessary because we work a lot with audits. Uh, we conduct a lot of assessments based on various frameworks. So I think having, having some type of a baseline knowledge of cybersecurity frameworks is very important. But it is also important to be technical enough that when you are working on implementing security controls based on these cybersecurity frameworks, you know how to implement them on whether the customer's cloud hosting providers, on their physical servers, databases. So I think a combination of a technical knowledge and a compliance knowledge is necessary in order to succeed in this role. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, security is such an evolving field that I feel like even just analysts and, and engineers have to have such a broad range of experience now and skill sets that, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's becoming difficult, you know, like even, even for someone like myself, um, you know, I, I was at a place that was moving more into containers. Well, that's, that's like an, a, a, that's an abstraction layer on top of an extraction, extraction layer, right? That, that makes things more difficult. It's a whole new, you know, kind of language that you're learning of how to, you know, administer and maintain and manage, you know, that, that whole deployment. And, you know, I'm here 10 years in the field and I'm still, I'm still learning these different, these different skills. Right. So how, how do you, how do you stay on top of all the different changes, especially in the compliance area? Because, I mean, here in America, right, we have, you know, 50, 50 different states. Each state can have its own compliance regulation that someone would have to comply to, especially if you're a nationwide company. Like, it's it's extremely easy for startups, you know, small startups to become nationwide companies, you know, overnight to actually have customers in these other states. Um, how do you stay on top of it? We don't expect one person to have knowledge of all of these uh, compliance frameworks. I think having knowledge on some of the uh, more standardized frameworks is very helpful. For example, um, we work with implementing NIST 853 controls, uh, which is really a standard that was released by the U.S. government uh, for like a basic cybersecurity controls. And when we were looking at other frameworks, um, they utilize controls from framework standards like NIST 853, NIST CSF-171. I think that having a knowledge of some of these like more generalized frameworks is very useful so that when you're working with other compliance standards, 
you're not unfamiliar with what the requirements are. There is a lot of overlap. One of our uh, most common uh, cybersecurity framework that we implement is SOC 2, and then afterwards it comes ISO 27001. Even these two frameworks have so many overlapping controls that just implementing one of them can help implement up to about 40, 50% of like other frameworks as well. So I think having a good baseline is very important because once you have a good baseline, it will be a lot easier for you to implement other frameworks because there's a very likely chance uh, that there's already a lot of overlapping controls that you don't have to do additional work. In some cases, we'll implement a more strict controls like PCI DSS compliance, or we'll work with our customers to implement FedRAMP, which is a uh, government requirement if you're working with the US government. And implementing those security controls, some of those customers can easily pass a SOC 2 audit or an ISO 27001 audit without really doing any additional work because they're already covering almost 100% of the controls. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. You know, with so many different controls out there, whenever I'm asked, where do you even start? You know, I, I always recommend that we start with like a least privilege model and that we we try to work towards the NIST recommendations. And at some point, there's going to be a good amount of overlap. Um, and then you just start, you know, knocking out the things that are the outliers that aren't the overlap of the of the you know compliance framework that you need to meet. And that that's really that's probably the only way to do it now, you know, because everyone needs to be compliant with so many different frameworks. I mean, there's probably frameworks that you don't even know that you need to be compliant of that, you know, you, you are not compliant with. It's, um, it's a mess that doesn't get, I feel like it doesn't get enough attention on the outside of security. What are, what are some good ways of, you know, actually enforcing this compliance within an organization um, because, you know, as organizations get bigger, they have more people, their teams grow, the applications that they're developing and managing are increasing. Um, it's easy for these, you know, recommendations and compliance requirements to kind of get pushed to the side. Do you, do you recommend that companies you know, enforce like strong policies um, and get those built out and in place and regularly touch base with their teams? Or is there other ways and methods of doing it that you found to be effective? I see compliance as a good starting point and a good baseline for any organization that wants to have a good cybersecurity program. I do not see it as the finish line. <laughs> I think that just because you are compliant with the framework, it doesn't mean that you're secure from cyber attacks. You don't have to do anything now. There is still absolutely a lot more work involved. Uh, sometimes we need to implement very strict uh, security controls for our customers that aren't required by the compliance frameworks just because it's a good security practice. So I think that organizations need to use compliance standards as a good baseline, but they shouldn't just use that as the only way to build their cybersecurity programs. A good cybersecurity program that consists of a, a good compliance standard um, frameworks that you're complying with. And on, on top of that, a good risk management controls, a good risk assessment, internal audits, regular gap assessments, and enforcement of those security controls. Um, for example, SOC 2 is a very vague standard in my point of view. Um, you can define the controls based on the organization level requirements. 
So I can say something like, I want my password policy to be six characters, and that's it. And I don't really require like any other special characters, uppercase, lowercase. I don't have to do that. As long as that's what it says in my policy, SOC 2 can be like, okay, you're good on this control now. It doesn't mean that you are secure. You may need to do some additional work to update that password policy so that you're actually following a good, secure password controls. Hmm. Yeah, I've I've also experienced, you know, that sort of that sort of back and forth on it as well, where you know you're you're pushing a compliance standard, and then you know the the teams that are actually deploying it and meeting the standard, you know, it's 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 lacking, right? It's lackluster in, in what it provides in terms of security. Saying that you're compliant with SOC two doesn't really mean that you're, you know, going to be able to protect yourself from a wide ver- variety of cyber attacks that can happen. I think that's that's also something really important that I guess small companies would need to hear more than, you know, the bigger companies, they, they typically have that down. They already know that. But the smaller companies, and I, I think back to when I was working for a smaller company, you know, they were very adverse to deploying any sort of security, um, you know, one, because of the budget, you know, two, because, you know, they felt that they were meeting the bare minimum. But we had customers that were expecting, you know, not just the bare minimum, they were expecting, you know, top tier security. And I was the person that was, you know, kind of fronting that where, I'm the one that's dealing with all the blowback. I'm the one that's dealing with the complaints at 2 a.m., you know, because this security thing isn't enabled and they're missing their requirements, maybe internally or their own compliance requirements. And it's a it's a difficult game to play, especially when you're a small company, because you probably don't have the kind of headcount that you would need to actually enforce some of that. And so do you also provide I guess, kind of engineering services around that to be able to actually assist in deploying some of the controls? Oh, absolutely. Uh, We do not only uh, conduct gap assessments, internal audits and risk assessments. On top of that, uh, our team may need to work with the customers to actually implement those controls on their hosting providers, on their technical systems. So there's definitely some engineering efforts involved there. Um, and in a lot of the cases, we work with the software engineers um, that work at our customers' um, companies. So that also happens a lot, but we absolutely have to provide some type of an engineering resource in order to fully implement those security controls. Hmm. Yeah, it has to be more of a, a full suite offering, you know, to actually have it make sense for, for, the, for the smaller companies. You know, where... Where do you see um, this space, you know, going and growing over the next five years, right? Um, Where do you see the virtual CISO space going? Do you think it's going to be, you know, still evolving and growing? Do you think that there will be a different way of approaching this or, or, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Oh, I, I think it's definitely up and coming, and I think it'll be required more because I think the main reason why companies need this level of service is because of the increased amount of compliance frameworks. Like now other 
uh, their customers are probably requiring them to comply with these frameworks in order to work with them. So like, yes, there's definitely some financial aspects of that involved, uh, but in a lot of the cases, when you become more compliant with these frameworks, uh, you open up the markets to your organization more. Like, for example, we've just talked about FedRAMP compliance. It's a, one of the uh, government compliance frameworks. If you want to work with a government agency and you need to process their data, you have to be FedRAMP compliance. Some other government agencies may require things like state ramp and other frameworks. However, once you are compliant with those frameworks, that means now other government agencies can also work with you. So you're really opening yourself up to the market more and expanding the number of customers that you can reach. Um, another example would be HIPAA compliance. Uh, there's a lot of healthcare organizations out there, and there's also other technical, technical organizations like SaaS products that offer services to healthcare organizations. Without becoming HIPAA compliant, you really shouldn't be <laughs> working with those uh, healthcare organizations because you don't have the proper security controls to secure electronic protected health information. But once you do become HIPAA compliant, then you are able to actually work with those organizations and that can bring more customers and help your company grow faster. Hmm. Yeah, it's, that's, uh, it's an interesting balance, you know, because you have to, you have to be able to open yourself up to be ready for different opportunities um, as well as, you know, balance that with not putting undue stress, right. Um, on your team or on your organization in ways that you'd, you'd fail or it takes too long. And now the, the opportunity isn't the same. How long do you typically notice, you know, organizations coming up to compliance? Maybe what's the longer compliance standard that it takes for different companies to, to come up to compliance with? And what are what are some quicker ones? Um, and the reason why I say that is because, you know, in, in security, when there's a when there's a really large problem, right, that you have to solve, typically where you start is the low hanging fruit. What's the things that I can handle, you know, in the next seven days, right? That'll make maybe forty percent of a difference. You know, get me forty percent of the way there, right? Is there compliance standards that you recommend like that? Or is it something else? I don't know if I can recommend a compliance standard because I think it all depends on the regulations and really your customer network, like what type of customers that you have, uh, what laws really apply to you. I always tell my customers, like before you really start building your cybersecurity program, you need to look at your customer requirements and you need to look at the laws and regulations that apply to you. So you really understand what you need to do in order to better service your customers. Um, we've had many customers that come to us uh, because they needed HIPAA compliance. And these organizations were already working with healthcare institutions without being HIPAA compliant. Sometimes they just don't know that they need to become HIPAA compliant. They just know that they need to do better in terms of security. But understanding those laws and regulations are very important because in some cases, failure to comply can have very <laughs> negative consequences, uh, both financially and legally. So I kind of see cybersecurity as also insurance to protect your organizations from uh, these type of incidents. So you're not, again, just 
be in compliance, you can also prevent uh, any issues regarding compliance happening to your company. And you can also prevent other cyber attacks because that compliance framework is going to give you a good baseline to build a better cybersecurity program. Yeah, from uh, from what I understand, I guess the cybersecurity insurance premiums almost across the board, like doubled or tripled overnight this year. And uh, that's a it's a crazy that's just it's a crazy amount of money that you're already paying for this insurance, you know, for it to double or triple overnight when it's the exact same you know, posture, like companies don't change their security postures overnight. You know, it, it happens over a couple of years of working on it. And it's just, uh, it's crazy. I've heard companies actually getting rid of the cyber insurance and like almost underwriting it themselves and like having an underwriting department actually, actually do that for them which is uh, it's something interesting. And I feel like that that feel in that area is, you know, still evolving because, you know, the, the premiums got so high that companies are like, OK, it's just cheaper to form our own department and underwrite this thing. Well, I think there are two things that are driving that price increase when it comes to cyber insurance. One is remote work, like ever since COVID started, people have been remote, even the organizations like that require <laughs> employees to come in person like they're only doing that like once or twice a week so Mm. it's becoming very fair (laughs) like i I live in new york city like i don't see people go to the office anymore (laughs) i travel to san francisco a lot and downtown is like a ghost town like people are just not there everyone is remote and i think that is already introducing a lot of um cybersecurity threats to these organizations because now their employees the laptops and other systems that like they're accessing, they're being accessed from all around the world. (laughs) Um, So I think that's definitely increasing the threat levels out there. And I think that's one reason like why these cybersecurity insurance companies are probably increasing their premiums. But the other thing is we now have artificial intelligence that's becoming more and more common, Um, not just in like ChatGPT and other like generative AI tools, but now AI can be also used as a cybersecurity threat. It can be used for cyber attacks. And like, this is going to become probably just worse and worse. And that just probably means that we need also our own AI that protects us from these type of cyber attacks uh, rather than just attacking. So I always see like the positives and negatives of artificial intelligence. Uh, but I think that because these things are happening more, we're seeing more data breaches like that recent Samsung data breach that was caused by, I think, one of their employees like using ChatGPT. Um, so there's just a lot of uh, cyber threats out there. And I think because of these like two uh, things, uh, the cybersecurity insurance premiums, they're probably going to increase more. But it's really increasing because uh, the risk level is higher than any other time now Um, (laughs) any company can have cybersecurity incidents and like we do training on this uh we try to catch up to all of the vulnerabilities out there remediate them and also implement security controls to really like protect our customers from these emerging uh cyber threats but i feel like from now on it's just going to get worse unless we do a better job of uh protecting ourselves 
Yeah, that's a really good point with the rise of AI. And I, I didn't even think about it like that was, you know, with the with the yeah, with the rise of AI and how quickly it's evolving. I guess insurance companies would be seeing that and they're getting extremely worried, you know, because it's an unknown risk, especially with AI of all things. Like it's a completely unknown risk that can really cause some great damage to an organization if it's used in the wrong slash right ways, you know? Um, so that, that, that is uh, quite interesting. And then the, the working remote part, I didn't even realize that that would, you know, increase insurance premiums. Maybe that's why some of these companies are pushing so hard for workers back in the office. Um, you know, like recently, you know, Amazon came out and said that they're going three days in the office, two days from home. Um, and then it, it was also released in like an internal, you know, memo that they said that it would take like five years to get fully back into the office. You know, so it seems like they're not they're not stopping at the three. You know, three is just a starting point and whatnot, which, you know, adds it adds complexity, right? Because now I think as a, as a worker, as an individual contributor, you know, it's coming to my mind, right? It's like, well, what did you do during COVID, right? You were remote. So what's the problem with me being a remote now, you know, but looking at it from an insurance premium perspective, there is a risk to risk to that. If you don't have the proper security stack in place and a lot of companies, you know, don't want to rip out their existing security stack and augment it with some new technology. That's typically like very scary for older companies. That's for sure. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot of these insurance companies also send out additional security questionnaires <laughs> to <laughs> companies now. And they're basically asking them about their like security posture. Some of them want to conduct an audit <laughs> for those companies to verify that they actually have those security controls in place. Uh, and I don't, know if AI and like uh, remote workforce, they're definitely uh, indirectly impacting this because they're one of the reasons why there is more security incidents and data breaches out there now. Hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, Metin, you know, I, I think we're, we're coming to the end of our time here. You know, before I let you go, how about you tell my audience, um, you know, where they could find you if they want to reach out and where they could find Remetic uh, if they want to, you know, learn more about what you guys are offering and, and potentially reach out to get more information. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can always uh, send out a contact us form through our website, which is uh, remetic.com, R-H-Y-M-E-T-E-C.com. Uh, and yeah, uh, one of our uh, salespeople will be reaching out to you from there. And uh, thank you so much for having me, Joe. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks. And I hope everyone listening enjoyed this episode. Thanks, everyone.